From WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I am currently driving in my car right now on the way to an interview for an episode of Close to Home that I've been wanting to do for a really long time. And I'm so excited about this conversation today. I'm going to be speaking with Paul Rush, the Deputy Commissioner for the New York City Department of Environmental Protection. Now you might be wondering, what does the Department of Environmental Protection for New York City have to do with the Catskills? Well, so much of the Catskills is actually managed by New York City and the Department of Environmental Protection because the Catskills are where New York City gets almost all of its water from. And that means that New York City has a major stake in what happens here in the Catskills in our environment, in our land, and of course, most importantly, our water. And this has been a special partnership for over a hundred years since the Catskill Aqueduct was first opened back before 1920. And then finally the Delaware Aqueduct, which was even larger than the Catskill Aqueduct, was opened finally in 1945. And since then, the tap water in New York City has been some of the cleanest of any metropolitan area in the United States. And there is lots of lore about how the bagels and pizza that you get in New York City are as good as they are because of the quality of the water that goes into them. Right now, we are just coming into the town of Neversink, which of course has kind of an ironic name because the old village of Neversink was a thriving community here at the turn of the 20th century in the northernmost part of Sullivan County. And New York City used a law that was passed by the New York State Legislature just after the turn of the 20th century to basically claim what we would today call eminent domain to flood some of the local valley towns around here to turn into reservoirs to supply drinking water to New York's burgeoning population. So to give you a better idea of this, between the middle of the 19th century and the end of the 19th century, New York City's population grew tenfold from about 300,000 to 3 million. And one of the main reasons that New York City was able to support that explosion in population was because of the opening of the first reservoir to supply drinking water to New York City, which was the Croton Reservoir in Croton-on-Hudson, some miles north of New York City along the Hudson River. And it used gravity to its advantage to send water down from Croton to New York City. So by the time we got to the turn of the 20th century, uh, the Croton Dam had already had to be rebuilt to create a larger reservoir there to support a growing population. And city planners in New York knew that they would need a lot more water as the population continued to explode in the coming decades. So they started looking further north and further west. They had actually considered going all the way to the Adirondacks to pull water from Lake George. They eventually settled on the Catskills. One of the main reasons why at the time was, if you'll bear with me to dive into a a tiny bit of geology, um, the water coming from the Croton Reservoir along the Hudson River was what they would call hard water. And what that means is that there was a lot of calcium and magnesium in the water, which is perfectly safe to consume. But when you start using that water for industrial purposes, and as you can imagine, they certainly were doing that, you start to have a lot of problems. So steamships particularly started really malfunctioning because uh, there would be calcium deposits that would form in the boilers 
And those are really hard to scrape off and clean up to repair the boilers. So they needed water that would be softer, I'm using air quotes here, uh, which means less calcium in it. So calcium in water usually comes from limestone. And a lot of the rock all over the US, but certainly in parts of upstate New York, uh, is a lot of limestone, which has a lot of calcium, which of course means that the water coming up from our groundwater supplies has a lot of calcium in it. Well, in the Catskills, there is something very different geologically going on. And as a result, there is virtually no limestone to be found, which means that no calcium in the water. So when they realized this down in New York City, that they could potentially access water that was much lower in a calcium content, they wanted to jump on the opportunity to build what would become and is still to this day the world's longest tunnel, 85 miles long, to connect a series of reservoirs that would be built over the course of several decades at the turn of the 20th century to bring fresh water down to New York City. And in large part, this undertaking allowed New York City to be the international center of culture and finance and power that it is today. But one of the reasons that I'm particularly interested in talking to Paul about the Delaware and Catskill Aqueduct systems now is because there's a lot of work going into particularly the Delaware Aqueduct system right now. And those are ongoing projects. And as you can imagine, these aqueducts are really difficult to work on and require entire new feats of engineering just to fix. Because over the course of many decades of use, these piping systems for these aqueducts started to leak. And there are several spots along the Delaware Aqueduct that are leaking millions of gallons of water every day. So the Department of Environmental Protection, which manages the water supply for New York City, needed to figure out a way to repair these leaking aqueducts. And New York City has spent billions of dollars, that's billions with a B, on repairing these aqueducts and making sure that they will have safe and clean and plentiful drinking water for the next hundred years to come. So I am going over to the Gramsville office for the Department of Environmental Protection to learn about these ongoing efforts and to learn more about how this incredible system works. There's a lot of history with the city's water supply and I consider myself fortunate to have the opportunity to be part of the water supply, the long chain of engineers, civil servants who've really worked to build out a system that provides you know, the biggest city in the country, one of the most important cities in the world, with clean water reliably. And this water that the city receives right now, as we're talking, all the water is coming from the Catskills. Mm. It doesn't require filtration because it's been protected at its source. And a lot of other cities, when they were building out their supplies, they picked the water that was closest by and began treating and knew they had to treat the water and treated it mechanically. You know the the techniques, the skills, the technologies improved over time to do that. But New York City, you know, it learned, it, you know, when it was first built, we got water right there at Manhattan. Mm. That supply was soon not big enough. There were some big fires and disease outbreaks in the 1830s, which really galvanized the city to look elsewhere for its supply. 
So first the city went north into Westchester County to get water from the Croton watershed mm. and a little bit of the Bronx River watershed as well. Brought it down into the, down into the city. And in 1842, there was a huge celebration in Manhattan when that water that was brought down from the Croton, from the Croton River reached the city. It was pure water. So that was a really, really big deal. And the city continued to grow over time. And the water supply was an essential part of allowing that growth to occur. And you know, looking to the north, there was a need for more supplies. And then back around the time of the Civil War, there was, there was a drought. And um, the city actually tapped in temporarily to supplies from Lake Mayapak, Lake Lenida, and some other lakes. They bought access to those lakes and also began building additional reservoirs in that Croton watershed to get more water, to capture more of that water and bring it to the city. And there was a need to expand the Croton system. There was more water available. There was a study done and the Croton Dam was built, a new Croton Dam was built in 1890 and a new Croton Aqueduct was built to provide water to the city. So about 1890, you know, the city's there, it's continuing to grow. And in the, in the 1890s, there was also something else that occurred. It was the amalgamation of New York City. New York City was originally, New York was originally Manhattan and Bronx. You had Queens, you had Brooklyn, you had Staten Island. When they all became, came together, you know, the urgent need, the supply took on a bigger challenge. The city needed to care for more people. And Queens, Brooklyn, they were served by local wells in Queens and some out on Long Island provided part of the supply. And the ch challenge was where to go. So I keep this book in my office and I look at it periodically. And this is from 1905. It's the report on New York City's water supply and the need for procuring additional sources so as you can see, this tattered map that I'm going to pull out. Well, your radio folks probably can't see the map, so I apologize for that. It's a, it's a fold-out from the book here, and uh, it certainly looks original with the book. The city looked far, literally far and wide for additional sources to go. The Croton system had been built, and where to go next? So they looked into north of the Croton system, into the Fishkill River, the 10-mile watershed, the upper Housatonic, which stretched into Massachusetts, the lower Housatonic that was into Connecticut. And as you can see here, all the way up into the Adirondacks, the upper Hudson watershed and Lake George were looked at as possible sources. In addition, you know, looking into the Wallkill watershed, into Orange, into Orange mm -hmm. County, the Ramapo, the Moodna near Newburgh, and also the Catskills. Now it looks like some of these are geographically closer to New York City than the Catskills. I mean, Wallkill that, is clearly much closer. Why not choose Wallkill? That's a good question. So you had sources that were a lot closer, but one of the greatest concerns at that time was getting water across the Hudson River. Hmm. That was going to be a huge challenge. The original idea was simply go north, adjacent to the Croton system, up deeper into Putnam, Dutchess, a bit of Columbia County, and over into Massachusetts and Connecticut. And that was the idea. And plans were developed for a series of reservoirs into Dutchess County. Hmm. Um, but in 1904, the Dutchess County Act was passed which prohibited the city from developing reservoirs in Dutchess or Columbia County. It was passed at the county level? It was passed at the state. The state oh, legislature the state passed this legislation. So the city... Why do that? Well, they, were, they did not want the, their county to have reservoirs built within there. And remember at the time, 
you had some pretty strong political families living in Dutchess County. You had the Vanderbilts, you had the Roosevelts. And I haven't gone back and looked at all of it, but that could have influenced the outcome. So looking over in the Catskills seemed to make more sense. The water in the Catskills was better quality than the water in lower Orange County. There was a lot of organic matter in that area. It just wasn't the same as the Catskills. The Catskills water was very soft, very low calcium concentration. And remember, at this time, there's still steamships. When you produce steam, you boil it. You want to reduce the amount of scaling that occurs. That soft water requires less soap when you wash it up. And it was a very, very good quality water. Mm. So the decision was to go first to the Esopus Creek. Um, that's when Ashokan Reservoir was formed, and then later on to Squarey Reservoir. Challenge was getting under the Hudson River and getting that water to New York City. So a design was made for an aqueduct to carry water from Ashokan all the way down to Yonkers, where Hillview Reservoir is today. 92 miles long, and the technology was used was similar to what the Romans did. Most along most of its route, the aqueducts on the surface is actually cut a little bit in, unreinforced concrete, covered with earth, and where it had to go under valleys, it would go into tunnels, reverse siphons to get under the valleys. There are a couple of tunnels, and then when it comes to the Hudson River, that was a big challenge. Finding the bottom of the Hudson River, it was much, much deeper than had been expected. To get down to the bedrock. To get down to the bedrock, competent rock to get that tunnel underneath the, underneath the Hudson, the aqueduct underneath the Hudson. So in between Storm King Mountain and Breaknut Mountain, right in that crevice just north of West Point is where the Catskill Aqueduct goes underneath the Hudson. And to get to competent rock, the tunnel had to be built 1,100 feet below sea level, below the surface of the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. It was the deepest infrastructure in New York City at the time of its construction. It still is the deepest infrastructure New York City has at the time of construction. That work was completed. The Catskill Aqueduct goes first to Kensico Reservoir in Westchester County, then on to Hillview Reservoir, then it enters the city tunnel system to get water through into New York City. Completed 1915 is when that first water from Ashokan Reservoir made it to New York City. The other part of the Catskill system was built a smaller reservoir, Schoharie Reservoir. The dam was built at Gilboa. Uh, capacity of about 18 billion gallons. Water is taken from the Shandakan Tunnel over to the Sopus Creek, runs down a Sopus Creek to a Shokan. That was done in 1926 is when that went into service. So the city came up here and took land. They paid for land. They went through a condemnation process. Communities were removed wholesale to allow water to go to the city. And, you know, the manner with, with it, which it was done, the folks in these communities, they weren't looking to sell their property. You had the city come with the authority of eminent domain to take the lands. And that's, you know, that was, is still remembered in the community. So as much as it's a story about New York City getting water, the technical story, you know, it's a technically, it's an amazing engineering masterpiece. It gets from Scurry County by gravity all the way into New York City, and water can get up to the sixth floor in most buildings in New York City without pumping Mm. by the design of the system. There was a human cost in the watershed by this being done, and, um, you know, there's, that's still, that legacy is there. I remember it, and, you know, building the relationship between New York City and the communities and improving it is something I've been working on and we continue to work on with New York City. But that's, that's part of the story as well.
So after the Catskill system was completed, the city looked elsewhere for water. Question again, where to go? And the place that was chosen was to go on the western side of the Catskills to look at Rondout Reservoir and then diverting water from the Delaware watershed into New York City. So we secured permissions to build the Delaware system out. Rondout Reservoir was constructed on the headwater on Rondout Creek. So the dam is actually in the town of Warsing, Ulster County. The reservoir stretches up into Sullivan County, has a capacity of about 50 billion gallons. Completed in 1944 is when the, when the reservoir was completed. The aqueduct went into emergency service during World War II. Um, actually, the stream was diverted into the aqueduct to get water down to the city. And then later on, it went into normal service after the dam was actually completed about 19, 1950. What did they need emergency service for? Well, there was a shortage of water. The city needed more water back in during World War II. There was a demand for water in the city, and the entire flow of Rondout Creek was diverted into the Delaware Aqueduct. And the De Delaware Aqueduct is 85 miles long, goes from Rondout Reservoir all the way down to Yonkers. And at the time of its construction, it was the world's longest continuous tunnel. And it still is the world's longest continuous tunnel. So Rondout was completed in 1950, 44 went to emergency service. After that, Never Sink Reservoir was completed. It went into service in 1954 and following that, Papacton in 1955. And those, you know, it's a six mile long tunnel from Neversink into Rondout, all in the town of Neversink. From Papacton in Delaware County, um, town of Colchester is where the dam is. It's 25 miles from, it's a 25 mile long tunnel from Papacton down into Rondout. And uh, the city's demand right now is about a billion gallons a day. Plus we sell water to outside communities north of the city. We sell about a hundred million gallons a day to those outside communities. In fact, most of 90% of Westchester County is connected to the New York City system. And there's some other communities in Orange, Putnam, and Ulster County that are connected to our system as well. Historically, was that part of the deal where as New York City, we're going to build this aqueduct through your communities, and 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 in uh, compensation for that, you can get. That's a, that's absolutely that's absolutely right. That was in the legislation. Um, it requires New York City to sell water at a reasonable price, and the price has to be based on cost mm -hmm. to any municipal municipality in a county where our infrastructure is, except Dutchess County. Dutchess County was specifically not included in that in that legislation. I can only imagine that was because of the Dutchess County Act, and this was the 1905 legislation which which had that in there. Mm -hmm. So any place in any community could tap into our s system, but our requirement you have to also there has to also be a backup system. So what happens if uh, the population of the communities? in New York City and North that are connected to this water supply either significantly grows or significantly decreases over the coming decades. What has to happen to the water supply on either end of that? Would this cause significant problems one way or the other? So the peak consumption for New York City occurred in 1979. The total city system was 1.6 billion gallons a day. Why back then? Is the, isn't the population of New York City higher today than it was then? We have about a million more people in New York City now than we had back in 70, 77. And we're using much less water, we're using about 30% less water. So we've done a lot to reduce consumption, become more efficient. Back during that time, you know, New York City was also, DEP is responsible for the water system, the wastewater system. 
and we're building out the wastewater system and we're challenged there and the city had entered into a number of consent orders with state DEC and was required to really reduce flow, look at ways to reduce flow into the wastewater plants, which drove water saving measures for the city where we invested in leak detection, replacing water mains as part of a program, started investing in that more. And also we began actually charging people for the water they used, metering water. Prior to that, it was all a flat fee rate. So we started installing meters. Mm. That helped change, change practices. We had programs to replace toilets, shower head replacement programs, there was a Seinfeld episode from February 1996, as I think when it first appeared, <laughs> where Kramer was complaining about this new low-flow showerhead that was installed in his apartment, and he couldn't get his hair washed. So he had the problem with his hair, and there was this, you know, there were some underworld characters who could come in and replace his showerhead back to the way it was. And that was taken at the same time we were actually pushing these programs out in the city. So consumptions continue to decrease because the technology's improved. I mean, these low flow toilets, you know, 3.5 gallons was really low, going from 5 to 3.5. Now we're down to 1.6, 1.7. We continue to push down consumption. One of the biggest things pushing down consumption right now are the replacement of the top loading washing machines with these front-loading ones that are just so much more water efficient. So the improvements in technology along with investments that you know the city's made have really driven, driven down consumption. So what happens if there's a big increase in population or a big decrease? You know, the problem when you have a decrease, a decrease in consumption and now we're billing largely on water use is a lot of our costs, the infrastructure investments, those are fixed costs that don't change with the amount of water that's being used. And you still need to be able to get enough money to pay for that. So that becomes a challenge where you have this... You, you, yeah, I mean, it's where you're decreasing consumption, becoming more efficient, then you have to look at you know increasing rates if you need to, to get that revenue. You know, the population, the safe yield of the city system, you know, we're down at about one point, a little bit over 1.1 right now. The safe yield of the system with, you know, including all sources is, a you know, a little over 1.3 billion. So we're in a zone where we have some flex. But if it appears that the city would need more water, we have to look for other ways to get water. First, we're going to look to get the most out of our you know, existing system, existing infrastructure, and look at efficiencies. But we really don't see that at need on the horizon anytime soon, even with you know, increasing populations for some of the upstate customers or new customers coming online. But we're, we monitor that. We're looking at that for the long term. In emergency situations where there is uh, either problems with supply in, in the Catskill or Delaware aqueduct systems or or when there's a, a spike in demand, is that when they go back to the Croton Reservoir and, and pull more water from there now? So now, you know, today we're, today we're not using any Croton water. That's the point in time just on this day. Particular day, we're not because we had other work we had to do that we're getting ready for and we, you know, we're in a wet cycle. Mm. But we now have reliable access to the Croton water supply system. We were under orders to filter that water, a consent order. The Catskill-Delaware system, we don't have to filter. We have a filtration avoidance determination, which requires us to you know, do investments in source water protection. And the investments that we make, I mean, it's the community in the watershed works together to protect the water. Uh, the city has has bought a lot of land in the Catskills, has bought easements on farms in the Catskills, but it's really, we want to work, and it is a team effort to do that. The Croton system, 
I mean, with the suburbanization that occurred there, it was clear that could never meet that high standard. So we now have a filtration plant in the Bronx, which has a capacity of 290 million gallons a day. That gives us a lot more flexibility to be able to shut down infrastructure and to meet, meet the city's demand, even if we have issues or problems elsewhere in the system. City and the Catskills now because it sounds like the relationship between New York City and this area that we're sitting in today has really evolved over time, going from claiming eminent domain, basically leveling communities and putting reservoirs there, to working as partners to maintain the environment and this water supply here. I'm curious how that evolved over time. I know that at some point, what was it, around 1990, there were, there were some EPA regulations, I think, that, that came out that yeah, yeah, did yeah, not yeah, change yeah, what yeah, that relationship was I mean, was it, like. cha it changed things a lot. So in 1989, the EPA promulgated the surface water treatment rule. Mm. It required all waters that come from a surface source, a lake or a reservoir, that it be filtered. They put a little carve out there, unless a water utility was able to demonstrate, and this is their language, control over its watershed and met certain objective standards about how cloudy the water is, what the bacterial counts in the water are, disinfection byproduct levels. So you had some objective criteria in this nebulous one, demonstrate control through, I mean, landowner, there's more yeah. language in there, demonstrate control. The conclusion was, you know, we're not going to be able to do this for the Croton watershed, and there had already been an idea to filter the Croton system, but we're going to go for getting a filtration avoidance waiver for our Catskill-Delaware supply. So the city decided to go, okay, let's go ahead and do it. So they hired a consultant, came up with a set of regulations, these draft regulations, and the city presented these draft regulations to the community that regulated many, many activities in the watershed, including agriculture. And I think the city putting these draft regulations forward did more, did more to bond the Catskills, at least the Catskills is the watershed region together, than anything else over since the construction of the reservoirs. Mm -hmm. The community's banded together. So you had two different groups. You had the watershed towns and counties formed the coalition of watershed towns. And the agricultural community began a series of negotiations to try to come up with voluntary ways to work together to protect, to protect the land through city support of best management practices on farms. That took a different path and actually was ahead of an agreement with the Coalition of Watershed Towns. So in 1993, the Watershed Agricultural Council was formed, and that was ahead of the city getting formal filtration avoidance determinations, but the city began working with the farms and supporting the farms. That grew over time, and the city backed off of regulating agriculture and went through these voluntary programs that were supported by the city. I imagine that New York City did a careful cost-benefit analysis on all of this when they were thinking That's about right. how to make these decisions after the EPA regulations came out. And they still decided, though, that all of this investment that New York City would have to make in this region in protecting all of this would still be less costly than filtering those billions of gallons of water that would That's come right. down otherwise. That was, the that was the calculation. I mean, it was, you know, it was all... From the city's perspective, the folks down in Office of Management and Budget, I mean, this would be more cost effective than building a large filtration plant 
and operating a large filtration plant. Mm. And the challenges of the time, the big, the big ones EPA was concerned about were Giardia and Cryptosporidium. The microbial, those were the big ones. You know, we also, there was advancements in research that UV light is very, very effective against cryptosporidium. So we built a large UV facility that went on in 2012. Now all of our water that comes from the Catskills is treated with chlorine. We add some fluoride to it, and then it gets treated with UV light. That UV light is very, very, very effective in taking care of the microbial pathogens and the cost equation, I mean, it made sense. And the city also is part of them. I mean, we did tremendous investments in increasing our staffing. We now have roughly a thousand employees based north of the city. You know, we have large operations in Kingston, in Gramesville, in Downsville, over in Arkville. And, you know, much of our staff is from the area. And I think those investments you know, helped us to build connections with the community as well. The other thing I wanted to ask about also is leaks in the system and, and ongoing sure. repairs to the system. For decades now, there have been different leaks that uh, I think the number I, I saw thrown around was something like 36 million gallons of water a day were being uh, leaked out of the Delaware Aqueduct system. What has been the process of fixing that and, and what are the ongoing efforts like now? So when I st started for DEP in 1992, one of the first assignments I had was to go down to Worsing where there'd been a report of a suspected leak. Mm. We had done some operations at Rondout where we had shut down the tunnel for a period of time and the resident of Warsaw had called up to here and said, did you do something in the tunnel? The water went away on my property. So it just happened we had a tunnel shut down at that time. And um, we monitored that site for many years. And about a year earlier, we had received a report from Central Hudson. They suspected that there was a tunnel leak near their Roseden generating plant in the town of Newburgh, Orange County. So that was investigated, and back at that time, we occasionally would treat with copper sulfate as we move water from reservoir to reservoir. We don't do that anymore to control algae, and we were able to detect traces of that in the water down in Rose, Roseden, so it was clear that it was water coming from, from our aqueduct. Mm. So we knew we had a leak. We didn't understand how big the leak was. We ended up doing a lot of testing to understand it, and we concluded that it was someplace between 14 and 36 million gallons a day, depending on what rate we were running water through the tunnel. At the highest rates, the highest pressure, we thought we had the larger length. You said 36 MGD. But the challenge was, okay, we have a leak. How are we going to fix it? So back at that time, in the early 90s, our consumption on the city system was closer to 1.4 billion gallons a day, 1.3. And the thought of having to shut down the Delaware Aqueduct for any period of time and meeting the city's water supply needs, I mean, it just was unfathomable. We couldn't, you couldn't get our, wrap our heads around it. Yeah. So we invested a lot in improving the facilities to prepare for a shutdown of the Delaware Aqueduct to repair it. We rented a large warehouse in Newburgh and stocked it with emergency repair equipment, including tunnel repair vehicles, sections of pipe, large pumps as a contingency. And we still have that equipment in Newburgh in this, in this warehouse. And we were in the process of developing a design to do the repair. And one of the big parts of the design was figuring out if we were going to do a long-term shutdown of the Delaware Act, where are we going to get water from? So we looked at connections into reservoirs into Connecticut, taking water out of the Hudson River and treating it, connecting into New Jersey, 
looking at all sorts of different options to get additional water to the city and other sorts of interconnections. As over time, demand on the system decreased that made it more feasible to be able to, to do a repair. And back in 2010, we came up with a plan um, that wouldn't involve you know, a multi-year shutdown of the Delaware Aqueduct. It was a shutdown that would take six to eight months. It would involve building a bypass tunnel underneath the Hudson River, um, build that bypass tunnel, and then shut down the tunnel for six to eight months to connect the bypass tunnel. And when we shut down that tunnel, we would go in, we would go into the tunnel in the town of Wawarsing, and that leak is much smaller, and fix that with using concrete grout. So that plan was developed, but it required a lot of other different parts to get it done. We had a project to repair and rehabilitate the Catskill Aqueduct, to remove biofilm and repair some leaks in there so we can get more water out of the Shokan Reservoir when we do the shutdown. We had some backup pump stations in the Croton system at, in Putnam County and Westchester County, Croton Falls in Putnam County. We electrified the pump station there and the one at Cross River so we can take some water from the Croton system and put it into the Delaware aqueduct so we have more water to push into New York City. And we completed in 2015 the Croton filtration plant, and that gave us reliable access to Croton water at a rate up to 290 MGD that we we didn't have previously. Now the Croton the Croton system can't provide that water that much water all the time, but for a short duration, it can. So we have all that those big projects elements together. These elements together that set up the conditions to do this shutdown, you know, build the bypass, and now the last step, that tunnel is complete underneath the Hudson River, the last step is connecting. And we did that work in parallel, and you know, we had planned to do the shutdown, but everything has to be, we need everything perfect for the shutdown to happen. Down at the Croton system, yes, we could get 290 MGD through the system, the city's demand has decreased over time, we still have to be able to push that water into the city. And the city has three different tunnels. And tunnel number two actually has the highest demand on it. That goes all the way from Yonkers, all the way into, into Brooklyn and Queens. Mm -hmm. And when the Croton system was originally constructed, it was only connected to tunnels one and three. We needed a connection to Tunnel 2, even though we had the capacity to be able to push all that water out. So we had that work completed last year. This year, we were pushing to do the, you know, we were looking, our original plan was to do the work, the connection this year, this October. And what we found when we were doing some testing where we pumped down the, Rond the Delaware Aqueduct in March, to test some of the pumping equipment, we noticed that the infiltration rates were greater than what we had planned for, and that the equipment, the equipment there, the pumping equipment, was not going to be able to handle this. It could handle that flow, but the conditions for the workers would have been unsafe. Infiltration rates, what do you mean by that? So, Rondout Reservoir is built with a dam 840 feet above sea level is the spillway. Mm -hmm. Water leaves Rondout Reservoir through the Rondout effluent chamber and it flows over to shaft one of the Delaware Aqueduct. Mm -hmm. It drops straight down a shaft down to roughly 500 feet below sea level. Then it goes on a grade all the way to under the Hudson River and on the east bank of the Hudson River in Dutchess County near just north of Beacon in the town of Wappinger is shaft six. At that point, the tunnel goes back up. It starts going back up a little bit higher until it reaches West Branch Reservoir, which is an elevation of 500 feet. 
So the tunnel has a sag where it goes underneath the Hudson River. When we need to do work on the Delaware Aqueduct, we can we have valves where we can let water drain out of it by gravity down to about 63 feet above sea level. So just turning the valve on will get you down to 63 feet. To get all the water out of the tunnel, it has to be pumped up. It gets pumped up, pumped out, pumped out into the Hudson River. So when we do the repair, obviously the tunnel has to be empty. And the last time it was empty was 1958. It's been a long time since it's been empty. So what we did was we pumped down water in the tunnel. So the pressure on the tunnel and there, so you have the tunnel and you have shafts. You're actually taking water out of the shafts in different sections of the tunnel. So we got down to minus 90 feet below sea level. And we had estimates of how much water was leaking by estimating the leakage out of the tunnel. We had estimates, so we know how much we set 14 to 36 million gallons a day leaking out. The engineers estimated leakage in based on that in some other tests where we had gotten it down to 63 feet above sea level. Right. When we pumped it down, we noticed that the tunnel refilled when we got down to that level a little bit faster than what we anticipated. So that meant that there was more water, I mean, there was more water seeping in than we had originally expected. And if you have workers in there, it could be a it could be situation. It could be a problem. I get it. So mm-hmm. we had to go back and improve our drainage systems to make sure that we're able to handle when we pump that tunnel out because we have leaks going out, we know we're going to have leakage coming back in, that we have enough pumping capacity and water man- a water management plan to be able to manage that when we connect that bypass tunnel. And we want to make 100% sure, or as sure as we possibly can, that when we say go to the contractor to make that connection, that he has the highest possible probability of success. So. That's why we ended up having to push back the shutdown this past year. So this whole bypass tunnel through there is is mostly so those couple of larger leaks can be fixed. Is that is my understanding? That's right. So what happens in the future if in another section of tunnel you find that there's another leak that springs? I mean, it's a old tunnel and I imagine that it would be not particularly feasible to replace large sections, if not the entire tunnel at some point. Would, would just more bypasses need to be built? So, I mean, the tunnel was built really well. And when Mayor McClellan, he spoke actually in Putnam County along the Catskill Aqueduct, when we just began this journey to build, get water from the Catskills, and he spoke about building a system that was comparable to the great works of Egypt and Rome in terms of how it should be designed to last. So we were very, very fortunate. That was the mindset when this system was built. And with the Delaware Aqueduct, most of its route is going through shale that's really not subject to any really out leakage and we haven't identified. It's really in these areas where we have limestone where we have to pay particular attention. So we are look. We have a program to look at other tunnels, the Catskill Aqueduct, as I mentioned from a show can. It's cut and cover except where it's not. There's some tunnels where it goes underneath valleys, and one of them's the Rondout Pressure Tunnel near Stone Ridge, and we have leakage there as well. And that's a similar challenge where it goes through limestone. It's that same. It's actually called the Port Jervis Trough geologically, Mm. going all the way up from Port Jervis all the way up to Kingston. In that area, there's limestone, and that's an area where we're beginning to do work to plan for a repair of that tunnel. So now we understand what that issue was. We, I mean, we've identified it on our watch. And remember, this is this supply, the water supply of the city goes back and we can say back to the Crow in 1842. So in this slot, we've identified this issue. On the next watch, we're aware of this, and it's important for us to 
make sure that we're watching these other issues that that come up and we're making sure the resources are dedicated to make repairs and do the investments in the engineering to identify what the issues are. And that goes for the tunnels, that goes for our dams, goes for the entire system. Thank you to New York City Department of Environmental Protection Deputy Commissioner Paul Rush for taking the time to chat on today's episode. Even though I grew up seeing reservoirs like the Neversink and the Rondout all the time, I think that hearing from Paul gave me a deeper appreciation for the engineering and history behind the city's aqueduct system, but also just for how special it is to have this pristine natural environment here in the Catskills. And my friends who have come up from the city usually seem to get this. It's typically one of the main reasons they came up here in the first place. But growing up here, I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about the quality of our land and our water. I think maybe I kind of missed the forest for the trees, maybe even literally. But to see the largest city in the United States investing billions of dollars into developing a water infrastructure, the likes of which had never been previously achieved in human history, in addition to hundreds of millions of dollars to maintain the quality of our watersheds today so that the water doesn't even need filtering before coming out of kitchen sinks a hundred miles away, well, it's kind of amazing. As of the time of this episode's production in August 2023, the Delaware Aqueduct is slated to be shut down from October 2024 until the spring of 2025 for repairs to its major leaks. And I hope to bring you more updates on the progress of those repairs in the coming 18 months. But for now, I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a podcast from WJFF Radio Catskill. Remember, you can find all of our episodes at wjffradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and have a great week.